Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Imagine this rope. Okay, pretend this rope just goes on forever. Now imagine that this rope is a timeline of your existence. You just exist forever. You see this red part? This would represent your time on Earth. You've got a few short years here on Earth, and then you've got all of eternity somewhere else. And what blows me away is some of you, all you think about is this red part. It's all you think about. You're consumed with this. You go, oh man, I can't wait till here. You know, I'm gonna work hard. I'm gonna save, 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 so I can really enjoy this part right here. And you're consumed with that, and you're thinking, oh man, am I gonna get to travel? Am I gonna eat well? Am I gonna do this during this part? And I'm like, are you kidding me? What about this? What about th- what about all this stuff? It's just it's crazy to me because because the Bible teaches that what I do during this little red part determines how I'm gonna exist for millions and millions and millions of years forever. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. It's the only one you have, and you can invest it into the future. You remember one of the opening lines of the movie Gladiator, where Maximus, before uh, he's trying to encourage his men as they go into the last battle before they win the whole war, and he tells them this. He says this, remember, men, what you do on earth echoes into eternity. Now, certainly he doesn't have a a Christian or a Jewish worldview, but I'll tell you, every worldview that believes that you have an everlasting soul has that value, that what you do in this life echoes into eternity. That's what the the red part of the rope translates all the way to the rest of your existence, and you, and you, you experience the good or the bad as a result of that. The details are, are very specific in the Bible. When the Bible talks and teaches us how to live our life in the red, often, especially in the Older Testament, it uses stories to tell us, and some of those stories are written in a way to make icons, iconic-type people, so that we can look at them and relate to them and see how they live their lives out and see if that would be us. We're supposed to, we're supposed to read these stories like we would sometimes, like an old Western, and say, okay, which, which hat am I wearing? Am I one of the good guys or one of the bad guys? Let's see how they live. And I want us to do that today. We're going to look at, if you look at the way the three, first three kings of the United Kingdom period in the Older Testament, first and second Samuel and first Kings, they're written in a way to say, wait, they're a caricature of values. And, and today, because it's going to be fun, we're going to use kind of a sports metaphor to weave in this. There are several types of people uh, on any, you know, sports activity. There's a lot of people there, but there's different types of people. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to, I'm going to explain to you the three kings, but I'm going to assign to those kings, right, a, a position and a, a life saying. And we're going to go through, and as we evaluate those, it's very important. This is, there's a test, okay? You're going to, you're, I'm, going to, I'm going to expect everybody to know what the three, I guess, titles are, but also what their life saying is. And as we go through this, please keep in mind, which one are you? Which one are you? Which, which person represents your values and your life decisions, and why would you choose that? Why would you choose that? The first one we look at, the first king of Israel over here, uh, we're going to call him a uh, spectator. 
and he's, he's got this little foam finger. He's up in the crowd. He just says this. He's a spectator. He says, I'm one of the crowd. Let's all say, I'm one of the crowd. I'm one of the crowd. A spectator. This is Saul, the first king of Israel, and he's a spectator, and he's just going to go along uh, with whatever everybody else is doing. And, and we can see this in the stories that are told. There's a lot of stories in his life, but which ones do the Bible tell? In 1 Samuel chapter 13, we find out that Saul is, if you were a betting man, you'd bet on him. The author describes him as literally head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. He is stronger, quite probably better looking, and bigger than anyone else. So let's make him king. You know, he's the guy that you say, look at all the potential this person has. And with this description in mind, with all sorts of expectations brewing and building for great things to happen in Israel, there's these stories that are told about what's going on in this man's heart, where he's just one of the crowd. One of the stories in chapter 13 is when Samuel, this is a prophet, and he speaks for God. So there's no ambiguity here. He speaks for God. And he says, Saul, in a week... I want you to go and, uh, and wait for me to light a fire as that will be the start of a, a war against the, the Philistines and don't start until I get there because that's the priestly role, the, the prophet's role is to start this fire. So a week goes by, seven days go by, and because Samuel says, listen, the Lord, the Lord will deliver you. The Lord will win this. And that's what, that's what the nature of this test is, is can the Lord win with many or, by, or, or with few. So as that day approaches, the Philistines start g- gathering in number, and, and the people at Gilgal, where Saul is, they're starting to get very nervous, his troops. And then they start counting. <laughs> there are, there are um, uh, 3,000 chariots. Those are modern-day tanks. And 6,000 horsemen. And then it says, there are so many infantry, they're like grains of sand on the beach. Well, Saul is waiting. He's getting very nervous because the odds are getting more and more against him. And it's, it's been seven days and Samuel's not there. And so finally, because of the pressure, he tells the person, get me the, the fire and I will start the first offering so we can get on with this battle. And no sooner did the first plume of smoke make its way above the tree line that Samuel showed up and said, what have you done? What have you done? What were you trusting in? And, he, and Saul did this. He, he, he blames it on other people and says, I was compelled, was his word, I was compelled to light the fire so that we could win this, so that we could win this battle. And, he, and Samuel says to him, you fool, you fool, you have not kept the single command that God gave you. See, he was just one of the crowd, and the crowd was panicking, so he panicked. And so he, he did whatever was next. And so he gets another test in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, and this is, this, this is what he was supposed to do. God was asking Saul to completely eradicate the Amalekites. Now, this is a group of people that have been troublesome and cruel since the day when Israel came out of Egypt. It's been 400 years. This has been a plague on them. And and God says, I want you to destroy everything with a heartbeat. Now, without going into the ethics of this, okay, because there's, there's some justifiable ethics for this, but God is telling him, Saul, this is what it looks like. I want you to take everything. Every man, woman, child, every animal, is, it belongs to me. It all belongs to me. Now do this. I'll give you this victory. 
And so he gives them the great victory. And they destroy everything up until, it says, the men see what kind of livestock the Amalekites have. Like, These are incredible cows. I've never seen bovine like this. And maybe they don't have to die right away. And then while all those guys are, are dubsing things, Saul looked at the king Agag and pictured himself riding into town, dragging right, a conquered king behind him. And so he doesn't do what he's told. And that night the Lord comes to Samuel and he says, I, I am grieved and I regret making Saul king. He has no heart towards me. Samuel cried all night long, woke up the next morning. He couldn't find Saul at Gilgal because it says he was making, Saul was making a monument to himself. When Samuel finally tracks him down, he says, uh, Saul says to Samuel, says, the Lord be with you. I love that Jesus speak. The Lord be with you. We've done all that the Lord has commanded. And Samuel says, I can't hear you over all the animals, the bleeding sheep, the mooing cows. What? What did you say? And Saul goes on, he goes, then immediately pushes it off on the men. Well, the men thought, why, would you, why should we destroy everything? And so we destroyed the old, old and ugly things, but we saved the good uh, to worship God, they would be used for sacrifices to God. And then that, Samuel just says, stop it. Harsh words here, shut up. And he says this f- famous phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament. It is better to obey than to sacrifice. Obedience is sacrifice. So don't tell me you were going to use these animals for something God was going to enjoy. God was going to enjoy you doing what he told. And he says, bring me Agag. And he brings the king of the Amalekites to him. And, he's, and this is Samuel. He's making a point. And he hews him to pe- a violent death before Saul so that Saul might see what obedience looks like. Saul, right here. Iconic. He's a spectator. What does he say? I'm just one of the crowd. Let's say that again. I'm just... Saul's a spectator. I'm, I'm just one of the crowd, right? He's a crowd pleaser, friends. He's a crowd pleaser. He's never going to make waves. Unless, of course, everybody's making the wave, and then he's going to make the wave. So here's the question, though. Why does someone choose that? Right? Why does someone choose to make that sort of decision so that they would just go along? What's motivating them? What are their, what are their key values? Okay, let's look at another king. The third king of the United Kingdom period, his name is Solomon, right? And Solomon, Solomon, he had it all. Okay, Solomon, we're going to call him a sponsor, and his icon will be a very expensive cigar, I guess. He's a sponsor. He owns the team, and he says, look at all I've done for you. So we have over here, we have spectator. What does the spectator say? I was just one of the crowd. Sponsor says, look at all I've done for you. Look at all that I've done for you. And when you look at the life of Solomon, you can see that he had it all. And when I say he had it all, he, he, he did. He, has, he had wisdom like no other human on earth and became famous for that. And with his wisdom, he acquired great wealth, 127 tons of gold per year. That's a good income. And with that, he did wise things. He uh, fortified the city. He built up uh, the palace, and he even built a temple not a tabernacle, but a temple for the glory of God. 
But when you read about Solomon's life, you can see that there's this, there's this distant view of his relationship with God. The way, the, the way it's written, you can see that he does things for God, but not with God. He does things for God, but not, no, not so much with God. He starts off well, but he finishes terribly. You look at the books that are written. Okay? Solomon wrote great books of wisdom. How to parent, the book of Proverbs. Right? How to have a great intimate relationship in marriage, Song of Solomon. And, and the diary of a frustrated man, Ecclesiastes. Psalms? Psalms? Intimacy with God? Maybe two are accredited to him. He does things for God, not so much with him. And when he gives, he's giving out of excess. Never real cost to him. It was never inconvenient. And here's the thing. When it says in 1 Kings chapter 11, and Saul did not give himself wholeheartedly to the Lord, it's interesting that his drift away, he started well, but his drift away from God was not because of sorrow, not because he was exposed to evil, but rather because of time, plus all of his assets, somewhere along the line, he felt like, look at all I've done for you. All the gifts of God, the wisdom, the wealth, the peace, he attributed it to himself and became proud. Hey, listen, if, if, I were, if I were to recommend to you one chapter in the Bible to memorize in the Old Testament, it would be in Deuteronomy chapter 8. One of the, I think it's the single most profound chapter because it talks not about suffering and evil and how to find God in that. That's sometimes when we're going clawing, looking for him. But rather, it, what happens when success breaks out around us? What's likely to happen then? Because this is what happens to Solomon. It, it, chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, here's one section where he says, he says, but at the time, at this time of wealth and prosperity, be careful, beware, beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands and regulations and his decrees that he's giving you. Because when you become full and prosperous and when you've built fine homes that you're living in and your flocks and your herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, that's when you be careful. You'll say, look at all I've done for you, God. And then here it comes, verse 14. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God that, who made you king over Israel. He did all this so that you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth on my own strength and my own energy. Verse 18, remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful. This, the the spec. This sponsor, you know, he's a little more committed than, right? He's a little more committed than the spectator, sure, right? But again, it's out of his wealth and it's out of his excess. When it comes to really getting, when it's going to cost him something, do you think, again, in light of who's on the field, right? Do you think he uh, is sweating and working out six days a week with the team? No, 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 no. You think he travels on the team bus? I don't think he has a bus. And, uh, you know, when it comes to standing on the sidelines, he'll be up in his box where it's comfortable. I mean, it's his. It's not the commitment. The reason this person has a difficulty making a total commitment in faith, that's what it means to live by faith. The, the reason he has a difficulty making a total commitment to living by faith is because over time, 
He has placed his faith in his resources. And so he can never let him go because they own him now. He doesn't own them. So a sponsor says, look at all I've done for you. Why does a person choose this? What's happening in their soul that they would have an attitude that they're, they're giving things to the Lord and he should be grateful? So let's review, okay? We have the first group of people. That's the masses of people in the crowd. They're the spectators. And what do they say? I'm just one of the crowd. And then the sponsors, there's few. But what do they say? Look at all I've done for you. Then our last icon, the last king we want to talk about. You know this guy, right? He's David. He's a slugger. And he says, no guts, no glory. This is a man that realizes that every day is to be lived for God. Every day. It, his, he understands the whole red is a short period of your life and it represents an infinitesimal percentage of your existence. And so he wants to use every one of those little red threads to, in, to like invest forward into eternity. Right? He lives a supernatural life. Let me describe what a supernatural life is in a sentence. It is living above and beyond your abilities. It is saying, I'm going to trust God to make something out of the few things that he's given me already, and there's going to be a God factor, God stories, God things, because he's going to do things that I couldn't do on my own, and I'll, I'll know to do that, and I'll know to attribute those things to him. See, and, and they're willing to, and they want no guts, no glory. They're going to just keep swinging, just keep swinging, right? And so we know these stories about David, and that's why he's a hero. We name our, our children like David. Uh, the story of David and Goliath. But listen to the story, friends. Listen to what's happening in his soul. Because, because it, it's, it's projecting what's going on in the heart of a slugger, right? So as, as you know, Goliath, he's the Philistine warrior, like nine feet tall or so. And they're a stalemate in this valley with the uh, armies on each side. And Goliath comes out every day, 40 days, twice a day, right? Sunrise, sunset. And he's not mocking Israel. He's mocking the God of Israel. I mean, th this, is, this is an issue of who you serve and who runs the universe. And then <laughs> David is too young to be drafted. He's under 20 years old, you know, by definition. And so he's doing just cheese and bread delivery on the 41st day. And here's the 81st time some little giant mocks God. And his immediate response is, who, listen to his words, who is this uncircumcised, who is this pagan Philistine that would mock the armies of the holy God? He's, he's, not, he's not mad that, you know, we're in a stalemate because of, I don't know, uh, odds. He's mad that somebody lives who gets to mock God. And so David says, well, you know, I'll do something about this. You know, I'll do something about this. And so he texts with the king, and the king, the king at the time is Saul, the biggest man in all of Israel who ought to be out on that battlefield. But Saul met somebody that's bigger than him. And since he only sees with his eyes and the odds are against him, he's sitting under a pomegranate tree in the shade. And David says, I can, I'll take this guy out. I, God has used me. I live beyond my abilities all the time. I killed a lion and a bear. You should see what God does through me. And what does Saul do? Classic. You should try on my armor. 
the tallest man in Israel is going to put some armor on a 14-year-old. But that's the way he thinks. Listen to the battle that's taking place. Listen to the words that are happening of a person that lives by faith. A person that lives by faith means they're, they're, they're outside their abilities. God's using them. And so David comes out and Saul, or I'm sorry, Goliath uh, trash does his trash talking. And then it's, you know, he finally runs out of words. And David says this, you come to me. Look, think about what he sees. The Lord is able to win with many or few. Okay, this is what David says literally. You come to me with sword and spear and shield. But I come to you in the name of God Almighty the God of the armies whom you have mocked. That's all I have. All I have is God Almighty, the God of the armies whom you've mocked. And this day, he will destroy you. I will cut off your head. We will feed your carcasses to the animals on the ground and the birds in the sky so that the world would know. Look what it says. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. Okay? The Lord, it is the Lord's battle. He will be the one who gives it to you. The Lord will conquer you. See? He, he's, he's living as though God were in charge of the universe and he's willing to risk everything. That, that's a great story. A story of waiting. One Jewish scholar that I love reading says, faith is waiting. Remember how Saul couldn't wait? Here's a person that has a whole heart. Here's a slugger. It's what it looks like to be a slugger and wait, okay? David was probably, he might have been 15 years old or younger when he was anointed by Samuel, mind you, to be the next king of Israel. And he waits year. No, no, I'm sorry, five years. Not five, ten. David will wait almost 30 years before he'll become king. Because on the two occasions, at least two occasions, when he actually he was supposed to replace Saul, on two occasions where he had Saul in his sights and, his, and his friends were whispering into his ears, the Lord gave him to you. You can be king now. You don't have to wait. And, and David knew waiting is obedience. And David said, who will raise a hand against the Lord's anointed? I don't need to be king. I don't need to go too soon. I'll wait for my turn to bat. This is what faith means. I don't have to be in charge until God says I'm in charge. That's what it means to live outside of the boundaries of your anxiety. That's what it means to live by faith. That's what it means to slug, to be a slugger. Uh, I, know, I know it's very easy for us to just go right to uh, David with Bathsheba, and then he takes Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. All right, you bet. Okay. So he, miss, he, gets, he gets fat and lazy. He honestly does. He, he uh, gets very proud in, in the spring when he should have gone to battle. He stays home. But in his confession, again, his confession shows, shows a lot about his heart, the, that he's a slugger, because compared to a sponsor and a spectator, he says this in Psalm 51. He says, against the Lord alone have I sinned. Against thee and thee alone have I sinned. He doesn't push it off on anyone else. He takes responsibility for it. This is a slugger, friends, okay, right? 
Everything he has is from God for God. He is living in the red part of his life so that everything will be invested in the eternal part of his life. He is playing to win. He is swinging at as many pitches as possible. There's somebody on the, on the Giants team that just said two years ago, forget this. This game's supposed to be fun. I'm swinging away. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, you made it to the pros. Start swinging. And so with a twinkle in his eye and butterflies in his stomach, David says, I'm going to make this count. You know what he says? He says, no guts, no glory. But what makes a person choose to live this life, right? What makes a person choose this life to, make, to, to, evaluate, to change their values, Okay, let's review, okay, because you, you need to pick which one of these is you, okay? We are, he's a spectator. What does he say? I'm just one of the crowd. And the sponsor, what does he say? Look at all that I've done for you. And then the slugger says, no guts, no glory. I'll tell you what makes these men different. It's their vision. It, it, <laughs> it is the way they see life. It's the way they see this rope. And this, this person, this spectator, he's very nearsighted. And the sponsor, he has double vision. And David here, he has tunnel vision. He is focused. This, this spectator over here, he's, he has near vision. Again, it's all about immediate rewards. I'm living this life as though there is no other life. Doesn't matter what he takes on a test, whether in Sunday school or with his friends, whether he believes in her soul or not. He's living as though there is no consequence for choices in the next life. It's his vision. Very narrow vision. He right. He's short-sighted. This one has double vision. This is, this is, this is. This one's been scaring me a lot lately. Solomon, right? The sponsor. Look at all I've done for you. They start well, and then they grow weary in doing good. What a sentence! Do not grow weary in doing good. And what happens in this person's life, somewhere along the line, sometimes because of the prosperity, sometimes, you know, chasing, right, that carrot, uh, the golden ring, whatever the metaphor might be. And these people, friends, I, I know, I'm knowing more and more of them as I've grown older, and it's becoming sad because, because so many of them, when they were in college, I had this amazing relationship with God, and I was in a personal group with the college pastor at my church or parachurch on campus, and, you know, I lived with these four guys, and we were a band of brothers, and we were accountable and all this, and then what happened? Life. Life. And sometimes, again, it's not sorrow and evil. Sometimes it's success. You know, when the devil comes to you, he never says, here's sign on the bottom line. It's always incremental. And, and, they, and, and Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 13 about four soils, four souls, and there's this one that, was a spe- that I just left behind for so long, but now it scares me because it says the third soil is the one who starts off strong and then grows weary in doing good because it says, and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches come and choke out all of the fruit. Something happens in people's lives where they, they say, look at all I've done for you. It's mine. And they, ha- and they just have this, this, they can't focus. They have double vision. And it's tragic. Oh, look, every decision has a price tag, and the price tags are eternal sometimes. This person, this slugger, he has tunnel vision, right? 
I mean, he just keeps looking at the red and just realizing how short life is. Paul says, Paul says one time, he says, um, he's, he's referring to the many sufferings. He says, when I consider the sufferings that I've encouraged in this light, in light of eternity, they're nothing compared to the rewards that I'll receive. And that's the mindset of a slugger, right? That no pain, no gain. All the working out makes it worth it, right? It, it just makes sense. So here's what I'd like to do. This, you know, here's what we did the first time I ever taught this. We locked the doors and made every student come up and grab one of these icons to represent where their life was. We're not going to do that today. <laughs> Mostly because back then I was hoping to lose my job, and now I'm hoping to keep it. So... But here's why we did that, and here's what I want you to think about the seriousness of this nat uh, nature of this conversation today. Which one are you? And the reason I, would, would, I, I put the kids up to this, and we stopped them right before it happened, but listen, friends, in a hundred years from now, <laughs> you'll be dead and, and forgotten. In a thousand years, if a hundred years doesn't do it for you, you think people remember your name, then I'll add another zero. In a thousand years, you'll be dead and forgotten. And decisions have consequences. What you do in this life echoes into eternity. This person who's just going along with the crowd has eternal separation from the presence of God. That's the consequences for his choice, even if he never felt like he ever made one. And then the sponsor, he has, he has regrets. All the woulda, coulda, shoulda's. How did I get lost in the weeds? Why did these things choke me out? Where did I lose my way? And this slugger, he has eternal rewards. He has eternal rewards. Crowns, it says, placed on his head by the king himself. And when he considers, right, when he considers the present sufferings in light of the day of eternity, they're nothing in light of the rewards that they'll receive someday. Which one of these is you? If we, if we stopped and said, circle the one on your outline, who are you? Because I would love to force this so that we don't go through life drifting. Which one do you want it to be? Where do you want to live? No one in the stands ever enjoyed staying in the stands on the only life they had a chance to live. And, and, and this person, again, living with tremendous regret. Swing away, friends. Swing away. You know, if you, if you, if you were going to a theme park like Disney World, or if you were, it was the only vacation you could ever take to some extravagant resort, what would you do? Would you stay in your hotel even if it rained? No, you'd get out and you'd do stuff. You would do things because you would know that this one week is all you have to celebrate this experience. That's the red. We have one week. Mother Teresa, what did she say about that? The worst life imaginable from heaven will be like a bad night in a sleazy hotel. She has a slugger's view. Choose this day whom you'll serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. We want to swing. Lord Jesus, I lift up this church to you. No, I lift up the people of this church to you. Lord, I lift up individuals that, Lord, I'd ask your spirit to, to oh, God, dear God, pierce to the soul 
of things that matter and things that don't. Wasted time and wasted relationships and wasted values. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us. Lord, I'd ask that your spirit would cause us to be nauseated, um, bored with the superficial temporal things in life. That we would not be people pleasers and crowd followers. That you would cause us to want to be strong and courageous. Lord, would you let us give, just give us a small taste, let us kill a lion or a bear before we look at giants. Would you give us a chance to live a life by faith where we're living beyond, we know we're living beyond our abilities, beyond our gifts, beyond our planning and control, and we would turn our life, the gift that you gave us, back to you so that we would please you for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.